Hi there, my name is Adam Waters, and I'm the lead pastor here at Grace Bible Church in Elmhurst, Illinois. I'm just so glad that you made the decision to take us along with you this week on life's journey. Here at Grace Bible Church, we are a family of faith who seeks forgiveness, healing, and hope in Jesus Christ. Now, we might all come from different backgrounds, but each of us recognize that the tremendous needs in our lives point us to one place, to God, for His answers, His provision, and mostly for His grace. I hope the following program gives you a new perspective on who God is, who you are, and how you too might find forgiveness, healing, and hope in our Lord Jesus. Thanks for listening. served with the Marine Corps, I was in an artillery battery. And so we would spend a lot of time out just waiting for something to happen. We were not always marching. We were not always shooting. We were not always, we would be waiting for a call. And that call would be a fire mission. When the fire mission came, a flurry of activity. But with Marines and lots of downtime, we have to find a way to occupy ourselves. The way we frequently did that was through calling out other people in wrestling matches. There'd be some commensurate smack talk back and forth. Someone would say something a little bit out of pocket. The other one would say, well, why don't you prove it? And then next thing you know, there is a match happening right before you, surrounded by 50 or 60 Marines all screaming to get the guy. One time I was watching one of these matches, and I was the medic. You know, I'm always the one on call in case something bad happens. And so I was standing there. They're going at it. I'm cheering them on too. I'm not going to lie. And finally, they're holding on to each other in such a way that they're about to choke each other other out. And they're saying to each other, give up, man. Give up. No, you give up. I'll give up when you give up. You give up first. Well, all right, we'll call it a draw. I'm not doing it a draw. And I watched these two young men choke themselves unconscious, lest they say, I give up. There's something in the human heart that is astoundingly stubborn in the area of Submission. We see this in our own relationships quite often. I know that I certainly do, for better or for worse. I'm often uh, in a wrestling match with somebody in my life where I've had to learn again and again to say, I give up. I give up. This wrestling idea of holding on to something and refusing to let go is a beautiful metaphor for what we see in our relationships. But Christ calls us to submit to one another out of love and reverence to him. Often when we're in an argument, when we're in a wrestling match, as it were, with the people we love or those around us, we don't want to submit for what it would mean in our own eyes. What would I think about myself? Or what would the other person think about me? What would that say about me? So we hold on for dear life, allowing ourselves often to our own detriment to be injured by our refusal to submit. This is why Christ calls us to look to him in our submission. You know, we do not honor God by reflecting the compassion of Christ and his initiative in forgiving us by grace when we refuse to mutually submit to one another in love, first for Christ, and only secondarily for the person to whom we are submitting. So today we are in Ephesians 5.21 through chapter 6. Nine. Paul discusses here his will for relationships within the home. First between husbands and wives, between parents and children, and then between slaves and masters. And we'll tease some of that out about exactly what does that mean in the first century uh, uh, context. This is a long text. 
It's broken up between at least uh, two chapters and at least three sections. One of our former pastors here, Tom Burris, used to say, whoever punctuated the Greek Bible must have done so on the back of a motorcycle, okay? Because it's quite unfortunate that when we open our Bibles, the first verse we often read in this section is, wives submit to your husbands. And that becomes the bold text. And then they say that's the beginning of the section. So now let's name that section that. So now you got in bold text, wives submit to your husbands. Instead of recognizing that everything from verse 21 through 22 through 6-9 is predicated upon verse 21. That verse informs our understanding of everything else that comes with it. If you do not understand what I'm going to preach today, apart from verse 21, you're misunderstanding me. This is the foundation for how we interact in our marriages, in our parenting relationships, and in the world around us, particularly in our employers today, in an act of mutual submission first to the Lord. So that's where we'll start. Verse 21. It's middle of a sentence. He's saying, Paul is saying, this is how we are supposed to live our life, singing in joy and giving thanks always, ultimately submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the logical start of our passage. And the Lord commands us, if you look very carefully, each other. This is a call to mutual submission one to another, as Michael had said, first in the community at large. For this is what it means to be a Christ follower, to truly be looking to the needs of the other first and loving others the way that you would want to be loved yourself. You see, we are commanded to love each other as we love ourselves. We're commanded to treat others the way we would want to be treated. This is the background for the remainder of the passage. Now, I want to encourage you as we go through right from the outset, that when we read this text, allow the Holy Spirit to say, this is you. Where do I fit in to this text? What being said here is convicting about me and my behaviors and attitudes towards those in my life? Because it's very easy in a passage like this to say, the problem is over there. If that person loved me the way they should, if they led me the way they should, if they treated me the way they should, everything would be fine. Some of that may be true. But the Lord is asking you to look first, primarily, at your own actions, your own attitudes, in my, side, in my circles, we say things like keeping your side of the street swept, not worrying about what your neighbor has got going on, focusing on you and your own home, the home within your heart. When we consider that God is calling us to do these things out of love and reverence for the one who gave everything for us, the one who died that we might live, there's nothing revolutionary here. There's nothing unreasonable in this passage, provided we understand that we are called to live and to love the way Christ lived and died for us and loves us 
It's only when we sever these verses from that anchoring and foundational verse in 21 do we go off track. So three main lessons here out of this text. The first, we're going to see how mutual sacrifice and mutual submission one to another characterizes a healthy marriage. So first it's in the marriage relationship, then it's in the parent-child relationship, and then we'll see it finally in the master-slave or the employer-employee relationship. Verse 22, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. This is only one example of what Jesus is saying in how we are to mutually submit one to another. Often we will read this. I think sometimes women in the, in the world that we live in today will read this and say, how chauvinistic of Paul. How dare Paul say this? Or better, you don't know my husband. And, why, and husbands look at that and they feel out of control in their own homes. They don't know how to love or lead well. They say everything would be fine if she would just do what I say. And so we make this verse everything. Instead of seeing that this is just one example of how to mutually submit. This is not a call for women to be subject to men. Wives are to submit themselves to their, if you look at the passage, their own husbands. This runs right up against our sensibilities in a modern world, does it not? These are these scenarios, and we're reading the text. We have to say, how do I understand? How do I take the principles at least out of this and use this in my life? This is why if we sever it from the call to mutual submission out of love for Christ, we'll go off track. We must look at the principles here the principle of mutual submission, and resist the urge to get hung up on one sentence or to allow the language or the context of 2,000 years ago to inform our view today and how it is that we are supposed to live. We have lived and grown and survive and have our, live and move and have our being in a space that is cultivated in an environment of feminism. And some of that, much of that, I would even argue, is timely and necessary. Hear me. Timely and necessary. I would call this biblical feminism. Because we are each made in the image of God. In and of ourselves. We're not one half image and the other half image. We're created each with value and dignity. And the call to obey God. The call to reflect God. In our homes and in the world around us. Men are not more valuable. When we read the pages of the scripture, often written in a time of patriarchy, it seems as if men have the primary place in everything. Well, I would encourage you, if you read from the beginning of the Bible, when does it start to seem like that? In Genesis 3, when sin comes into the world. And it destroys the very fabric of the husband-wife relationship and the way that we interact with our children and those around us. Male domination and chauvinism has no place in the Christian household or the society at large. Wives are challenged to submit to their husbands as if it were to Jesus himself. A few points of comment need to be made regarding that statement. One, husbands are not the Lord of the wife. There's a passage in the scripture where it talks about um, Sarah calling Abraham Lord. So I often goof around with Elaine. and I said, say it, say it. She said, I don't want, I don't want to say it. <laughs> Husbands are not the Lord of the wife. 
The power dynamic in a biblical marriage is never intended to be imbalanced. Listen to that. Never. Many marriages have suffered under the phrase of do as I say. And I wanted to ask you, in our vows, did we say to love and obey? Did we say obey in that vow? Yeah, because I remember when we got to it, there was like a catch in her throat when she said it. We were, we were, we were goofing around beforehand. The power dynamic in a marriage is not supposed to be imbalanced. When we look to Christ, when we love Christ for Christ's sake, willing to submit to him out of reverence for what he's done, in the light that he's calling us to mutually submit to one another, things begin to fall in place. Two, wives are to submit to their own husbands. Paul did not say, wives submit to husbands. Paul did not say, women submit to men. This can be a confusing point, particularly among our more conservative friends, that somehow men have priority or greater value or of their greater importance. Paul's words here are about relationship, roles, not gender. Three, our mutual submission is not natural, is it? Is it? It's not natural. So it must be done with a heart turned to the Lord and a posture of humility, or it is impossible. Impossible. Now, Paul does not leave us without a reason. He doesn't just say that and then move on. In verse 23, he says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even if Christ is the head of the church. When you read this, when you read head of the church, I want you to think leader. This is the word in Greek, leader, okay? Uh, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as a church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to everything, in everything, to their husbands. He couches the command to submit in the spiritual order manifested or displayed by the church, particularly Christ in his bride. When we read head of the church and we consider who Christ is, when we look at the Christ of the, the Gospels, when we read of the Spirit of Christ in the epistles, we do not see one who lords over for his own sake. We see he one who serves and dies on behalf of the other. So when we read ahead here, we should read one who went before, leader. For the head of the wife is a man, but not more valuable better or more worthy. Verse 24. Submission of wives to husbands should mirror the submission of Christ to the church. What does that look like? Because this could be very abused. Very abused. And we see it. I see it. What does submitting in all things look like? Well, a couple of comments. First, Christ never asks us to do anything sinful. In fact, it's the opposite. Christ calls us to be holy and without blemish before him, before the Father. As husbands and wives, our primary calling is to help the other person be obedient, to help the other person fulfill their calling as created by God. If you remember in the Garden of Eden, God creates Adam and says, you know, it's not good that man should be alone. He needs a the old word is help meet. The word is ezer in Hebrew, and it's often used of God himself. He needs one who will help him take dominion. To help him be my co-regent, my representative here on earth, because he can't do it alone. He cannot. 
So in the biblical narrative, the animals are paraded by Adam. He gives them names. Nope, none of them are going to work. None of them are going to work. God says, I know. I will create one from the man himself so that they are one flesh. They are of the same substance. And their primary role is to work together to be obedient to God, to point the other person to remember what God said. Instead, we see what happened. Adam and Eve choose to go their own way. But God's initial intent was to give us free will and to ultimately help each other be obedient unto God. Christ never commands us without expecting a back and forth. Very rarely in the scripture do you read a command of God to one of his servants and there's not some sort of, whoa, pushback. <laughs> I don't want to do that. I can't do that. I'm a, you got the wrong guy. Let's talk about this. I think this is normal. This is called authentic relationship. This is what it means to ask, hey, this is what I would like you to do. Can you do this? Well, I don't know if we should do that. I don't really like that idea. And this is why I don't like that idea. And to have a conversation. To be willing to go back and forth. And to come to an agreement. Christ is gentle with his bride. He loves, as we're going to see, loves and nourishes and protects. And so should men, husbands, unto their wives. And Christ's prevailing motive, perhaps most important, is that everything he does with respect to his bride, the church, is done through love. The goal being love. The motive being love. The method being love. So, now the majority of my message going forward is about you hubbies. And how we hubbies are not living up to the high calling that Christ has called us to. That here on Father's Day, you come and expect to be applauded for. I sit there myself and I think the same thing. I'm a dad. I deserve a dad day. What better day than to remind us that we have more work that is impossible in our own strength and is only possible through the power of the Holy Spirit that God gives us. So let's turn to 25. I'm going to read the whole passage and then we're going to go back. 25 to 33. Paul says, Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. Remember that word, splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ's intent is to present his bride holy before God. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Then he quotes Genesis. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Paul then concedes this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. You see, the calling of husbands to love their wives is a parallel calling for the call to submit to one's husband. Paul uses the husband's obligation to love as that example of what mutual submission looks like. If rightly understood, the command to love our wives should be more difficult than the command for wives to submit. 
especially when we consider that husbands must love their wives in a manner that reflects as closely as possible the way Christ loves his bride, us. There are at least six ways that Christ loves his bride. And these are used to inform us on how we are to love ours, men. For those of you who are not married yet, this is the way God is calling you to love your future husband. Should he bless you with, or your future wife, should he bless you with one? Wives, as we read these, this is how you can be praying for your husband. That your husband would be leading and loving like this. First, leadership. Christ leads his bride. Christ is the head of the church, as we talked about. In a similar way, the husband is a spiritual leader of the family. What does this mean? It's not importance. It's not value. It's not respect. It's not, it's initiative. The husband goes first. They take the initiative to lead their family, placing them before Christ, pointing them again and again in the power of the Holy Spirit back to God. They willingly take the brunt of the spiritual attack in defense of their family. I will stand in front of my family and take it. I don't know if I've used this example before, but in, the, in astronomy, you know, we live in a pretty dangerous world out there in the galaxy. If you look at the moon and all of its pockmarkedness, that's how the earth should look in every respect. We live in the middle of an asteroid belt. We should be demolished by now, but we're not. Do you know why? Jupiter. Jupiter's gravity is so massive that it holds the very fabric of space-time down and draws the asteroids to itself. So just as Christ is our Jupiter, is our heaviest thing in our galaxy, drawing away the asteroids away from us, so we too as husbands must be that person. We must stand and take the brunt of the spiritual attack that is no doubt happening with our family. We lead, we go first. In Hebrews 12 too, Jesus is called the archegos, where we see looking and fixing your eyes on Jesus, the perfecter and founder, some translations say pioneer. One who goes first, we take consequences first, we show grace first. Remember, while we were yet sinners, Christ loved us. We forgive first. We love first. Us first. Secondly, Christ died for his bride. Husbands, are you ready to die for your wifey? Are you ready to die? This is not a theoretical question. I challenge you to ask yourself right now, would I give my life for my bride? Not just our physical lives. Some ways that's easier. It's one time. Dying to ourself daily as we die to Christ and we submit to his will is part of the way that we love our wives well. You know, those little irritations. You know what I'm talking about. Why do we do it this way? This is stupid. I wish we would have done it this way. Facebook post. Pop, pop hole. Who here, when you buy a new shirt, washes it before you wear it? Raise your hand. It's okay. You can be honest. We're all family here. All right. Really? That's, you're the only washers? Wow, that's awesome. Okay. Who will wear a shirt without washing it because you don't want to rub the new off? Go ahead. 
you guys are wimping out. No one's being honest. All right, so we're about, I got to say there's more non-washers than washers. We had this discussion in our house. I bought this shirt yesterday. I'm a non-washer. Laney's a washer. Guess what I did when I came home from the store yesterday? Wash my shirt. It, no, no, no. <laughs> it was not a, applause necessary. It's a little thing. And you know, there are a thousand things that are way more significant that drive us crazy. Men, think about it. When you want to go out golfing and it's going to cost you several hundred dollars to have a day out with the boys because you deserve it. You've worked hard. But then there's a bill. Do it home. Wife of the kids needs something. Who wins? They win. Christ wins. We die for our bride. Third, Christ sanctifies his bride. This is another way of saying makes his bride holy. Christ sanctifies his bride. Jesus' goal in his death was to present us holy and blameless before the Father. Husbands should look for ways to point their wives to Christ, the dependence on the Holy Spirit, and to what God's word says. It's not an easy task. It's hard enough to deal with ourselves, to think about, well, do I keep my eyes on Christ in my own life? Now I got to do it for my family? Yep. Yep. Part of your calling to do it for your family is a fulfillment of your doing it for yourself. What do I do? I have to do some practical things. I do. There are times when life gets busy, but I don't want to forget about praying for Lane. I will sometimes set timers. I will sometimes set reminders. I will sometimes put a post-it note, something to remind me. I need to pray. Christ presents his bride in splendor. Beauteous, brilliant perfection before the Father. When was the last time you considered your wife in all her splendor? Sounds funny, doesn't it? But seriously, how do you talk about your wife? How do you think about her? How do you present her before God? Husbands, how are you doing in bringing your wives before the Lord in prayer? Are you being an example of godliness? The only way this works in our lives is if we keep our eyes on Christ. We seek to do it out of our own strength. It sounds overwhelming and impossible. It doesn't sound joy-filled. Look to Christ. Four, Christ loves his bride. Jesus loves the church with a completely selfless love. Verses 28 and 29 says, We are the body of Christ. When we love our wives, we end up loving ourselves. Why? Because we're the same person. The two shall become one flesh. This is not just a sexual illusion. There's something that happens when the covenant is made before God between a man and a woman where they become one entity. They retain their personality, their individual identities, but something new is made. Something real. And not just metaphorical. When we love our wives well, it benefits us. The inverse of that is when we love our wives poorly, it hurts us. And the same holds true for our community here at large. It's not just marriage. What affects me, what I do in my time out there, no one else knows, no one else sees, hidden sins, you know what I'm talking about, all of it affects each other. It affects us here because we're one body. 
We're called to live the golden rule out in our homes, treating others, our wives, as we would want to be treated. I fear that we don't do that very well, men. Christ nourishes his bride to provide for and to cultivate growth in. Nourishing does not mean bringing home the bacon in both senses of the word. Doesn't mean I've done my 50 hours Now, you do your job. I've done all of what I'm supposed to do. That's called loving you well. No. Are you providing for their spiritual growth? Are you providing for their emotional health, their relational neediness? Man, your wives need to talk. They need to talk. I'm going to give you a trick. Give you a nice question. I don't know how to say it. So, I don't know where she is. Anyway, you guys know Shannon. Sister Shannon lives with us every day. We sit at the dinner table. Those of you who have been to our house for dinner know that this question will arise. What has brought you joy today? Not how was your day? Not did you get the milk? What brought you joy today? And then you follow it up with the extra one. Why? Oh man, she's yours. Talk. Nourish. Provide for her emotional, spiritual, and relational appetites, her needs. Finally, six, Christ cherishes his bride. It's interesting. The word here literally in Greek means make warm. Now, but men, when I say to you make your wife hot, that's not what I mean. <laughs> Nor do you, I make my wife so hot she sees red sometimes. That's not what it's talking about either. It says my wife... Is her heart warmed when I'm with her? Do I say things that are intentionally, that are, that are intended to warm her heart, to tell her how amazing she is, to love her, to show her how special that there's no one else, that it's her and only her, that I, do you cherish your wives? Some of us don't. None of us do it perfectly. Are we roommates? Or are we lovers? Cherish your bride. All right. All of that. We're one third of the way through. So I'm going to go quick through the rest. All right. Because the way this plays out, the way that we are mutually to submit one to another not only affects our marriages. It starts there but it also affects the parent-child relationship. I just want to give a disclaimer, a preface before I go any further. Monday of this week, I apologize for Calvin for everything I'm going to preach right now about being a good parent and not outraging your children, okay? That was a joke. You can laugh. It's all right. There we go. All right, read with me. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. He's quoting from Deuteronomy. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but, put them, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You see, Paul addresses children who might be listening. Children, he had, children, listen. He commands them to lovingly submit to their parents. This is the way that we show our submission unto Christ. Even as young ones, we submit to our parents, to their leadership. We receive their love, their wisdom, their encouragement. And he couches it too in reverence to the Lord. We do this not because mom and dad are overlording us. It's 
because of Jesus. He says it's the right thing to do. You know, it's not uncommon at all for kids to think that they are right and parents are wrong. I don't know if you guys got that or not, okay? Paul is saying, I know what it seems like. I know it seems like they're wrong. I know it seems like you know better. I know it seems like their wisdom is outdated. They're old-fashioned. They don't understand this and that. But it's right. And he goes on to use an argument to sweeten the pot. He quotes the Old Testament. In fact, the fifth commandment. He says, it's as if God knew that there would be an additional reason needed for kids to obey. He says, it's going to go well with you. If you do it, you're going to have the life that you want. You're going to live long in the land. In other words, it's in their best interest to obey. I mean, in the end, there's no doubt that adults have the wisdom accrued through their failures and their successes their time with the Lord, their own salvation, that that young people would be wise to take advantage of that women. Young people here of that wisdom, young people. Listen to mom and dad. They're not leading you astray. They love you and they love Jesus and they want to help you love Jesus better. And in the end, it's good for you. Verse four, but there's another side. Talked about this mutual submission. Children submitting to parents. We talk about that. That's easy. What's the flip side? What does parental submission to children look like? Listen to that. It sounds like this. Fathers, do not provoke your children, verse 4. I mean, what does this mean? Do we pander to them? Do we give them everything they want and never make them angry? If you walk around the community long enough, you're going to hear that a lot. Provoking to anger is contrary, though, what Paul says. Provoking our children to anger is actually contrary to bringing them up in the discipline and knowledge of the Lord. So what does that mean? What are the implications for us? If our attempts to conform our kids into Christ-likeness, to lead them into more Christ-likeness, and it provokes them again and again to anger, it means you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. If Jesus were that child's parent, how would Jesus lead that kid? That's how we love our children. That's how we not provoke them to anger. Trust me when I say, I know this is not preached in a vacuum. That in the heat of the moment, this can go out the window. But if our eyes are not even on this in the calm moments, it won't be on it in the tough ones. Colossians says, Paul in Colossians says that provoking our kids will lead them to discouragement. If your kids are discouraged in your interactions with you and your desire to help them and they leave discouraged, we're doing it wrong. We're doing it wrong. Why do we struggle with this? I think this is a common struggle for parents across the board. We say things our kids leave discouraged, our kids leave angry. Instead of hearing what it is that we have to say and trusting that what we're saying is a a sacrifice to them. Well, a couple of things. Four of them, actually, briefly. Fear. We fear for the future of our kids, don't we? We worry they're going to make the same mistakes we did. They worry we catastrophize. We say, oh, they made one mistake. Next thing you know, they're going to be whatever. Fear. Many of us made the same mistakes and even worse. Control. We have an unrealistic view of our ability to conform them to the image of Christ instead of trusting that it's the Holy Spirit's power and he can do it better than we can. Sometimes we're just power tripping. I'm dad and I said so. We all know those words. We've said them and heard them. Because I said so. 
selfishness. We want to make life easier for ourselves. Let that one sink in. Behave, you're embarrassing me. I wonder how often the apostles embarrassed Jesus. I mean, you can read it again and he's like, we have a goal, our kids are getting in the way, and so we take it out on them in resentment. Pride, we worry about what others will think if our kids act up. We think about what does this mean about who I am if my kids don't obey? This is a tough one in the church. This is a tough one where everyone puts on their best face and we're a perfect family. We're going to show up on Sunday and court it. But there was an argument in the car on the way to church and there's going to be an argument in the car on the way home. Instead of recognizing that our kids are kids. I was an idiot. Why can't I allow that same grace be extended to the people around me? My own children. They're doing better than I was. Most of your kids are doing better than you were. You're going to ride them. No wonder they're provoked and discouraged. What if Jesus was their parent? What would it look like? These issues are addressed in chapter 5, verse 21 again. Mutual submission. Kids submit to parents in obedience for their love and reverence to Christ. Parents submit to children's needs to not be provoked, to not be discouraged, and to be loved in a way that is specific to them. All of us who have multiple kids know that our two kids or whatever are not all the same. Every kid is different. I don't care if they're singles or triplets. I believe Paul addresses fathers specifically in this first part of six precisely because they are the leaders. doesn't say moms and dads. 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 We have to lead. We go first. Don't expect their submission to your rules before you submit to their needs. All right, third. Christ-honoring mutual submission characterizes healthy employer-employee relationships. This is where it talks about slavery. So I'm going to read this, and then I have a little excerpt that I want you to hear. I think it's going to be helpful. Verse 5. Bond servants. Some of you are going to have slave or servant in that same place. It's the Greek word doulos, and it has multiple meanings over various contexts. Verse 5. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ. In other words, slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord. Again, reverence to Jesus, looking to Jesus and not to man. Eight, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a doulos or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there's no partiality uh, with him. Now, to understand this, in the context, and, and I'll explain this in a second, but in the context of what this means uh, for 2,000 years ago is that there was slavery present during the time of this is being written. And there was various forms of slavery. Sometimes, especially in the Old Testament, slavery would be the result of like winning a battle and you take them slavery, take them, uh, enslave them. Another one, it could be you're a debt. 
in debt and you're going to pay off your debt to this particular person. That wasn't that long ago. Not only did we have slavery here, obviously, in the South, but we also have, which tomorrow is Juneteenth, by the way, so praise God for that. We used to have slavery here in the South. We also had debtor's prisons, even much later than that, where there was the idea that if you owed a debt, you were going to be incarcerated. In other words, be enslaved until that debt was paid off, either by you or by somebody else. So this, when we read it, It's important to not have in mind only Southern American slavery pre-1865. There's a lot of contexts here that this word doulos can mean. It can just mean servant. It can have no intention to mean anything bad at all. Uh, In fact, today it's in vogue to have something called a doula in birthing practices where there's uh, this person is a servant. How can I help you? What can I do for you? How can I make this easier for you? A servant. We wouldn't call them a slave, call them a servant. All right, this is the preface to the ESV I'm going to read to you, and it's going to talk about this specifically. I want to quote it word for word because it is, it's helpful. It really is. So listen, it won't be up there. A particular difficulty is presented when words in biblical Hebrew and Greek refer to ancient practices and institutions that do not correspond directly to those in the modern world. Such is the case in the translation of evid, this is the word for Hebrew, uh, slave, and doulos in Greek, terms which are often rendered slave. These terms, however, actually cover a range of relationships that require a range of renderings, slave, bond, servant, or servant, depending on the context. Further, the word slave currently carries the associations with the often brutal and dehumanizing institution of slavery, particularly in the 19th century of America. For this reason, the ESV translation of the words ebed and doulos have been undertaken with particular attention to their meaning in each each specific context. They chose what to translate it into English depending on what was probably being spoken about, even though the word is all the same. Thus, in Old Testament times, one might enter slavery either voluntarily, voluntarily, to escape poverty or to pay off a debt, or involuntarily, by birth, horrible, by being captured in battle, or by judicial sentence. For what it's worth, this is a little side note. This is extra. Uh, The Constitution outlaws slavery except for those who have been accused of, those who are convicted of a felony. So if you go back and you look at your Constitution, slavery is still legal in a certain sense here in the United States. I'm going to put that out there and I'll start a whole uprising for me. Okay. Not literally. Not literally. All right. All right, I'm sorry. Protection for all in servitude in ancient Israel was provided by the Mosaic law, including specific provisions on how to be released from slavery. In New Testament times, a doulos is often best described as a bondservant. That is, someone in the Roman Empire officially bound under contract to serve his master for seven years. This is a contract employee, but this employer is, this is tight. This relationship's way tighter. It's no quitting. You're in it. You're in it. Um, when the contract expired, the person was freed, given his wage that had been saved by the master, that's interesting, and officially declared a freedman. The ESV usage thus seeks to express the most fitting nuance of meaning in each context. There's no question slavery is against God's will. It breaks his heart. There's no question. And why it was allowed, the complex, it, it stinks. We should hate it. 
But when we read this passage, we need to understand that this is not necessarily talking about the slavery in which one is being controlled and whipped into submission. This is somebody who's voluntarily assigned themselves for a period of time to go where that master goes. You go, I go. All right? And it was understood, and there was a social fabric here associated with it for that day. Not so today. But there are parallels today in some respects. Those parallels would be the employer-employee relationship that we see today. And so we can apply this principally, taking the principles out of it, in the way that we mutually submit as employees to our employer and as employers to our employees. So verse 5, employees are to submit to their bosses as unto the Lord. We give them respect. We serve with integrity. We're sincere. We just don't say the things that they need to hear. We literally do the things that they're asking us to do. And we show them goodwill. We show them grace. In our day-to-day work, you know, it's hard. We deal with bosses who are not great sometimes. It's just the, sometimes we're bosses and we're not that great. We'll get to that. It's about showing grace to people and recognizing that they're broken just like you. Verse 7, ultimately, says if you're a Christian employee, you work for Jesus. He says, servants, serve your master as unto the Lord. Unfortunately, not all of our bosses are believers. Even when they are, we cannot necessarily expect them to be treating us in the way that God desires. Yet we are called still to submit to them out of love for Christ and look to Christ for justice, fairness, grace, and the recognition that we sometimes do not get. And employers, we are called to submit to the needs of those in our employ. Paul basically says, everything I just said about employees applies to you too. Masters. Bosses are to treat their people as if they were employing Jesus. What if Jesus were your employee? Think about that. Not only if Jesus were your boss, what if Jesus were your employee? Ultimately, when everything is done in love, there's no need for threatening, which Paul warns them. This is kind of parallel to where he says, don't provoke your kids. Don't provoke your employees. Extend grace to them. Treat them well. Treat them as if they were Jesus in your employ. And don't lord over those who God has placed in our care. So all that to say, when you're tempted to dig in, in your relationships with those people around you, your husband, wife, your kids, your work, wherever, and you want to wrestle until someone taps out, (laughs) remember Christ's word to you today that we can let go, we can look to him, keeping our eyes fixed on him, submitting mutually one to another out of love for Christ. As we do that and we live out his will and the power of the spirit, as we trust him for the outcomes, instead of trying to manipulate or demand what we believe is ours, I am sure because God's word says it, it will turn out better in the end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess, Lord, that we do not submit well. That word, we hate that word. And we know, Lord, that that word gets uh, such, drives a, a, a thorn in our heart. We hate it because of our sin. We want to do what we want. We don't want to submit. We want to live the way we want to live because we think we deserve more. Lord, whether this is something that's little in our lives, relatively speaking, or Lord, it's a, a... cosmological, a spiritual battle where we refuse to submit to you, it's all bad, Lord. 
We confess it. We confess, Lord. As wives, we confess that we sometimes do not submit to our husbands the way you've commanded us for lots of reasons. And Lord, we ask that you would forgive us. Lord, I stand here as a husband and I confess for the men within this church that we do not love our wives well enough. We do not love our wives the way that you've called us. And Lord, we pray that you would forgive us for that and give us the power, give us new eyes. Help us, Lord, to see the perspective, to see this world through your eyes. We pray, Lord, that we would be totally reliant on the Holy Spirit in this because we cannot do this well apart from you. Lord, help us to parent our children well. Help us, Lord, not to provoke them to anger or cause them discouragement, but Lord, let us raise our children as if Jesus was our child. We pray, Lord, that we would be obedient to those in authority and our parents. I pray for the young people, Lord, that they would be given the grace to see the truth about the love that you have for them, about the love that their parents have for them and their desire to see them blessed. I pray, Lord, that as we spend a vast majority of our time day to day in the employ of others or employing others, that we would be a shining light, that we would demonstrate what mutual submission looks like in our workplace, that others who see us would see Christ. We thank you for all the fathers here today. We thank you, Lord, for the spiritual fathers and those who have shown us uh, what it means to love unconditionally. And I pray, Lord, that you would um, bless them and that you would heal the hearts of those for which Father's Day is a difficult day. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor Adam here. Well, I want to thank you for tuning in to Grace Bible Church, and I would love to hear what you thought of today's program or of ways that we can be praying for you and with you. So check us out on social media at GBCL. Also, if you would like to support our ministry, you can give securely at our website at www.gbclm.org. Now remember, God loves you, and so do we.